It's April 6th, 2023. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 253 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam dostan aziz, durur Hope you're doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. I th- we have an interview coming up that I suspect will, will be a powerful one, will have some impact. There is a man right now sitting outside the UK Foreign Office mm-hmm. in London who has been there for 43 days on a hunger strike. Vahid Beheshti, a Iranian-British journalist who has been on this hunger strike for 43 days. I suspect there are people who are listening who may even know about him now because even though when he started it, it was kind of on a lark, it seemed, you know, mm-hmm. and it didn't get a lot of attention in the beginning, although he had some high-profile visitors. Yes, early in, on, too. In the first week, yeah. Um, at this point, he's starting to get some international attention. I've mm-hmm. seen some major newspapers write about him, uh, and he's been on some some big, a uh, couple of big networks. So it's kind of punching beyond just the Iranian community too. So why has he been on a forty three day hunger strike? He is on a mission to get the UK government that he believes is 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 a key player here because he fi- figures this sort of a domino effect if mm-hmm. the UK government does this for the UK government to put the IRGC on the terrorist list once and for all yes um this is sepa this is the government arm of uh, you know um, this is connected to the Iranian Islamic Repu- Republic regime and we know there's been this campaign and Canada and the EU and everywhere, including the UK, mm-hmm. for the IRGC to be put on the terrorist, terrorist list. Nothing has worked. Now, a hunger strike is actually getting a fair bit of attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, we're worried about his health. It's, yes. uh, you know, this is, what's 43? It's like six weeks. It's almost, yeah. Right? Exactly. So um, I'll be asking about his health, but I'll also um why this was the the time to do this why he felt you know he's been an activist i mean he is um back in iran he was arrested a couple of times i'm not mm. sure if it was for activism but uh and then he fled iran about 24 years ago mm-hmm. um he's been active in the uprising i wonder what the precipitant was for this to be the moment to yes. go on a hunger strike though but um Damish Ganem. Yeah. You know, like, uh, thanks for doing what you're doing out there. Uh, again, I mean, uh, I'm sure a lot of people would counsel him to to save well, his health first. Well, that's what I was going to say. Going back to, you know, saying that he's had some visitors along the line. I think within the first week of him going on hunger strike, he was, um, Reza Pahnavi and Shirin Ebadi right. met with him. And they actually asked him to kind of stop the hunger strike. Oh, and, yeah. and he had kind of said, you know, I'm staying true to, to this, I guess, the hunger strike. And I'm going to see it through. Yeah, Actually, I don't right. know if it was him, if it was Vahid or his wife, or somebody said, if you're going to do a hunger strike, you, you got a plan to to go for it. It mm-hmm. doesn't have any effect if after seven days you give up or right. something, you know. So here we are, 43 days in. Um, he's been visited by a number of British MPs. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's getting attention 
from everybody except for I think the UK Prime Minister. Wow. So um, so anyway, he doesn't do he hasn't done a lot of interviews. So I'm I'm very grateful that he's agreed to do this. Mm-hmm. Vahid Beheshti coming up in London live in London in just a few moments. Also later in the program, remembering the great Iranian filmmaker Kiyomaris Pur Ahmad. Now um, he's a filmmaker that I I think people who were growing up a certain cohort of Iranians mm-hmm. especially those who were growing up in, in like the 80s and 90s right. um, and people who were living in Iran more so you know because he's not the kind of name that I didn't know a lot about him like Mahmal Baf or Kirstami mm-hmm. or Jafar Panahi but but he's very well known in Iran mm-hmm. uh, very sad news that yesterday it seems he took his own life uh, even though he's in his early 70s uh, um, he was dealing with sadness and hopelessness. and mm-hmm. um, So our friend, the documentarian, Mehrdad Ahmad Poor, is going to join us in the Rook studio to talk about the life and legacy of Kier Maris Poor Ahmad, very well known for this hit TV series, which was... Tales of Maji. That's Tales actually of, what I know him by. That's, that's well, the I, one thing that I... Now, how did you know that? Because you were too young when you, yeah, you left know, Iran. I think I saw... Um, an episode of it like randomly either I mean I can't say it was online at that time it was through this like um, Persian satellite TV thing right. that my grandparents had and I saw it on that um, and I was really young and so it was something that I would watch with my grandparents and because the story is this this young boy with his grandma it was just it was always something In that I, yeah well I, I actually canvassed uh, not just the Rook team but a few of my friends and, and a couple people in Iran actually mm-hmm. cousins and stuff and yet they all knew the yeah. tales of Majid. So, um, so anyway, um, obviously a sad story with this. Um, he was clearly not uh, a happy man in recent times. I think his latest film was up for the Fajd Film Festival, mm-hmm. and he declined to go yeah. because in support of the uprising. So there's, I mean, I even saw some stuff on social media about like the regime did this to him. You know, basically the situation in the Vaziati Iran is so bad that. You know, he he was in a depressed place. Well, he actually, um, regarding the Fadge Film Festival and him declining the invitation, he was quoted saying, you know, what festival? Why would I go to a festival of this sort when there's, you know, crackdowns that are this bloody and painful? And so he was very vocal about why he wasn't attending. Hi, Pega, by the way. Hello. I I don't know if I said hi. (laughs) No, I think we just Uh, jumped into it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Uh, Well, let's jump into it, actually. I mean, if you have a couple of news news items, we can do them Mm -hmm. because I want to get to Vahid so he's not waiting for us in line. But um, what do you got? What have you been thinking about? Well, um, yesterday was what would have been the 20th birthday of Hamid Reza Ruhi, who was the young man who was killed back in November. Um, And I don't know if you remember, but there was that video of him on a motorcycle Mm. that um, they had put a song over and it had gone viral and everyone kind of remembered him. Handsome boy. Yes, he was he was very handsome young man who was actually pursuing modeling. Um, and so yesterday was what would have been his 20th birthday. Mm. And so what we saw was large crowds that gathered um, in his hometown of Shahrazibah in Tehran. And so a lot of viral videos came out of that. Um, and uh, it was really heartwarming to see the support again. 
you know, it had been some time since we had seen crowds like this gather, especially in Tehran. And it's really the first large demonstration we've seen since the Iranian New Year. Um, the reason that this is significant and why I wanted to talk about it is because there were a lot of women present, mm -hmm. as usual, within mm -hmm. these demonstrations. Mm -hmm. But it felt different because on Tuesday, the Supreme Leader actually went out and uh, he made a statement about the compulsory hijab right. laws Right, they've again. been trying to double down on they the hijab have, thing again. Exactly, yeah. and I mean, we we talked about the, um, the bill that passed in Parliament, so yes. that had taken place. And so despite that, you saw all these women out full force, you know, still standing strong so for anyone who's doubting that the revolution is still going on it is yeah. definitely going on yeah, yeah. so that was kind of the upside to that um but sad news you know with these protests and demonstrations we always have to worry about the aftermath and unfortunately hamid reza ruhi's father was then detained after these protests related to the protests yeah immediately after the protests oh actually All so right. you know waiting on an update on that um well i can up you on the dystopian news of the day i think because um uh, China, um, yes. of course, now the greatest trading partner with Iran or their biggest trading partner, also mm -hmm. the biggest trading partner, by the way, with Saudi Arabia. China hosting a meeting of the foreign ministers of Iran and Saudi Arabia today. You would have seen just in the last couple of hours these images uh, emerge. And um, this is with the, as I've called him, buffoonish yes. um, foreign minister of Iran. And uh, his counterpart from Saudi Arabia, where they're just like Rubusi and hanging out mm -hmm. and making plans to open All embassies and plans. let's, you know, people can travel to our respective countries. So curious. So curious what, what's going on here. Um, it's, it's obviously not good news um, on any level, really. But, um, and it's fascinating. And next week, actually, um, I'm quite excited. On Monday, we have. Uh, the Swedish MP, Azadeh Rojan, mm -hmm. coming. But next week, we also have Ervin Khachikian, <laughs> our musical friend, who's just uh, finished the Persian voice, the voice Persia. The what voice Persia, The yeah. voice Persia. But also a, pol a policy analyst we're going to have on to talk about. I want to ask about this Saudi Arabian situation because mm -hmm. it seems counterintuitive to me. Yeah. How did Saudi Arabia suddenly pivot from funding news networks that are against the regime That's and right. everything else and to suddenly like uh, this, this, you know, um, fanciful time. We, we don't have a lot of details about what is emerging from this meeting today that happened, um, but um, all of them seem like they're in the direction of a detente or a uh, rapprochement between mm -hmm. Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean, we've heard a lot. They, they issued a joint statement, the foreign ministers of both countries, saying that, you know, this was a great opportunity to, sh um, to achieve shared benefits for, for both countries. So what those benefits are going to be, who knows? Um, and like you said, you know, they've talked about opening of embassies. Um, they've talked about delegations and granting of visas and travel to each other's countries and the citizens being able to do that. And actually, fun fact, or rather interesting fact, is um, Saudi Arabia's national airline has already posted on their website flights to two cities in Iran. So yeah, I think the first great. city is in Mashhad, and the other one, I'm not sure which one it is. So Fabulous. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, okay, so it is, uh, we're getting uh, Vahid Beheshti hooked up here. Um, this is going to be on video and audio. I should mention that um, we are on our regular podcast platforms. We have this mission with Rook Media to build an ongoing um audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. And so our podcast platforms are Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, 
uh, CastBox. You please subscribe on any of those or check us out if you're in any of those podcast uh, arenas and you don't normally listen to us there. But if you want to watch what you're hearing, you can go to YouTube right now. We're going to actually put the, if you're not already on YouTube, we're going to put the video of this interview with Vahid Beshti straight on YouTube. And by tomorrow, mm -hmm. we'll also put this video, the full interview on our Instagram channel at Rook Media. Uh, if you like to get your bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram where we have our, that's sort of our bilingual channel. It's, um, it's, almost, uh, it's almost early evening here in Toronto, so it's gonna be actually quite late for mm -hmm. Vahid Beheshti. I'm so grateful he's doing this because in London right now, it's probably 10, 11 o'clock. Um, we wanna thank people who are becoming our Rook members on Patreon. Now, if you go to our website, rookmedia.com, you can press the support us button and become a Rook member, a Patreon member. Yes. And um, this is a, a subscription for a few dollars a month. We really appreciate this. And if you are a regular listener, a regular viewer, a regular audience member of Rook and you have the resources, um, please do become a Rook member, become a Patreon member. It helps us stay alive. But also, as Patreon members, you get special things. Yes, you do. And so I had promised last Thursday, for those on Patreon, uh, it was this weekend was going to be, well, was in fact, Oogie, Oogie's fifth birthday. Now, mm -hmm. Oogie is my French bulldog. But also the spiritual leader. So much more than that. The great leader of Rook Media is Ugi, who keeps us all um, entertained and uh, alert. <laughs> Ugi, the French bulldog who lives in Canada and is especially, uh, and was born in uh, Hungary, uh, but uh, is especially fond of things Iranian, including. <laughs> A soft spot for Kubi He loves Kubi He loves Kabob. So I had promised that on. Uh, his birthday, I would give Ugi some, because he usually traffics in the, the kibble and the, you know, less <laughs> exciting, maybe a little bit of peanut butter, right. um, maybe once in a while some, you know, a little piece of fish, but but he he rarely gets kubide. But I noticed one of the times when I had some kabob in the house, mm -hmm. particularly kubide, Persian kabob, Ugi went nuts. So I had pledged that for the Patreon members, mm -hmm. on his birthday, I'm going to get him some Kubida and we're going to film it, make a video of him going crazy, which we did. And he did go crazy. <laughs> he did go crazy. He was running around in circles, all excited. Yeah. So we have put that uh, up for our Patreon members. If you are a member on Patreon, you can go see that now. Uh, how does it work? Do they go to the page or they get it in their email? Well, they actually get notified. If they're if they're it. already a Rook member, they'll get a notification. Right. And we've already had a few people comment. So oh, okay. Because we just sent it out, right? That's right. We All did. Right. We just put it out there, and we've already had a few people say that Oogie made their day. So. <laughs> Not only that, <laughs> but we have a special live event coming up uh, soon in the coming weeks. And if you are a Patreon member, a Rook mm -hmm. member, uh, you will get an invitation to that event. So um, just more incentive to That's join right. us as a subscriber. Um, thank you, Pega. Thank you. Let's get to our first guest and go to London. I'm told he is awaiting us there. You know, the revolution for freedom in Iran and against the Islamic Republic regime has involved a lot of brave souls who have put their lives on the line to try to fight for change inside Iran. We know about the young women and men who have sacrificed themselves for human rights, for democracy, and to expose the murderous legacy of the Ayatollahs. But there are people who are bravely putting their lives on 
the line outside of Iran as well. Vahid Beheshti is an Iranian-British journalist and human rights activist, and he has been on a hunger strike that is increasingly getting the attention of the world. His hunger strike outside the UK Foreign Office in London has now stretched to 43 days. Mr. Beheshti, who was arrested in Iran two times before he fled the country 24 years ago, is on a hunger strike with one simple and profound demand. Put the IRGC on the terrorist list. And right now, from outside the UK Foreign Office in London, Mr. Vahid Beheshti joins me. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you for having me, and I'm glad I'm uh, talking to your audience. Thank you so much for doing this, Vahid John. It has been... 43 days, I guess around six weeks. I, I mean, it begs the question, uh, you're a journalist yourself. The first question has to be, how are you feeling right now? So as the days go by, I'm getting weaker and weaker four days. On the day 40, I waited myself. I lost, I lost uh, uh, over 13 kilogram, and which my doctor says is, more than 17% of your weight, which is alarming for him. But thank God, uh, my blood pressure, my heartbeat, and the other two times they test my blood, they said the other stuff, uh, surprisingly normal, normal to my doctor. He's really worried about my weight. Uh, and that's normal, of course, 13 kilogram in 43 days. Hunger struck, I think, is normal, but it's uh, alarming for my doctor. Getting weaker and weaker physically, but more determined and stronger internally to continue this. That's interesting. I mean, a few days ago, you said something similar. You were quoted by the BBC as saying, physically, my body is getting weaker and weaker, but my mind is getting stronger. Tell us how your mind is getting stronger and what that means. Uh, by a lot of support that I received from uh, people, from Iranians, non-Iranians, who now they understand why I put myself in this, under this critical situation, living in the street for 43 days and being on hunger struck. So they pay, they pay attention on that. And this is one side of it from the other side. Uh, I have a goal in front of me from the day one and I meditate on that goal. That goal is prescribing IRGC, which I think at this uh, phase of, in this phase of our fight with uh, Iranian regime and with these terrorists, it's the most necessary step is prescribing IRGC. And we are in UK very close to it. They, I think, I put it this way. Our politicians and leaders, they need more motivation and awareness, which I am trying with all my being to give that to them. And I, that's all I can say. And so far, I think we had, I wouldn't call it great achievement. We had some achievements, which I can I can see it very, very positive. Take take me back to, to day one, Vahid. 
what was the precipitant? When, when and how did you first decide you were going to take this action? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, it's me and my wife uh, and my friends who uh, they are working with me in all these years, specifically in these six, past six months. We've been in, we had many meetings with uh, politicians in here. MPs, ministers, and many people. And we had two conferences in the uh, House of Parliament focusing only on prescribing IRGC. So, and this process was moving smoothly. Suddenly, we experienced an obstacle, which there were no explanation for it. Even the MPs who they are, are in direct contact with us, they had no explanation. After our research, we done our homework. Through our contacts, we found out the obstacle is from the foreign office. So we were in the position that we, ha we have the majority of, for example, MPs, both side of the house of the parliament, ministers, majority of politicians, I can put it in one way. They are agreeing with this to prescribe IRGC. But foreign, uh, foreign office holding the government back. That was the moment when I, I can say it was about maybe 52 days ago because it was about one week, eight, nine days before I started. I thought, I, I thought this is not working. The conversation, the meeting, the conferences, they're not working because we are talking to converted p people. They are in the same field as us. They have the same demand as us, our politicians, but something else holding them back. So I was really, my mind was really busy trying to find a way. So because my wife, she's a politician herself. She's a political deputy for conservative party in West Midland. So she's working with 45 MPs. Then when I come to this I would say solution and uh, because you have to do your calculation, you have to um, think about many things. You have to sacrifice many, I would say, things to decide it and become certain to start something like that. Then mm -hmm. I, I was certain I shared this with my wife. I shocked her first. <laughs> okay, are you sure about this? Anyway, when I was sure uh, 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 and uh, what if what's what, your question? What what was the spark? Mm -hmm. So this was all this I had it on one side, and my wife she was on the phone with one of the journalists from Iran International TV station. When she's got attacked, in when she was on the phone with my wife, and she came and she shared this with me. She said as I was on the phone with uh, this person, she just got attacked in middle of London. That's, that was the moment uh, I thought we cannot tolerate this anymore. Yeah. In London, they come here after us 
in London. Yeah. So we have to do something to give more motivation to our politicians. I think that was the moment. That was the a spark of this in me. Then I decided. I, I could only imagine the first few days, too, people were, I mean, with respect, people were probably rolling their eyes and going, okay, hunger strike or whatever, you know. Uh, when, when do you feel like people started taking you seriously? I mean, you've obviously uh, attracted some real attention now. You've been in some major newspapers. We're talking to you. Everybody's wanting to, wanting to talk to you. When did you feel that shift? For first 20, let me put it this way. For first 20 days, they pretend I don't exist, basically, for first 20 days. After 20 days, and when they found out, no, this person maybe is different, he's getting people, they were coming and visiting me from the day two when they found out I am here. And then they saw, no, many people, they come, they see me, they bring me flowers, and they chanted. Uh, here they put some kind of demonstration here it was a small but it was something to draw their attention but after the day of the I would say day 22 I think I start getting some visit by uh, MPs first I started and surprisingly on the day 24 somebody I don't name or I, I don't mention uh, her name, somebody, some of the politicians who said the day three when one of my friends and went and saw her to ask her to come and see me and listen to my demands. She said, no, don't involve me at all. She came and visit me. Mm. And on the day 26, that was the uh, big day. A uh, few hours before uh, the no rules. Uh, for the first time in the House of Parliament, government, UK government, recognized officially my uh, hunger struck. So Alicia Cairns, the head of uh, foreign committee, asked uh, Tom Tugendhat, the Ministry of State for Security, is anybody from the government willing to go and see Vahid Beheshti, who is on hunger struck for 26 days? The representative of the government, Tom Tugendhat, respond back, Yes, I am happy to go and see him, plus anybody from the government who's feeling the threat of IRGC. So that was the first time. Then Elisha Kens, the head of foreign committee, one hour after that, she came down herself. She stayed here. It was raining. I remember one and a half hour with us. And she offered me the facility of her office to go and use that. And I got her support from, the, from that day from Elisha. Two days later, the leader of the house, Miss Penny Mordent, yes. raised this again. Few more times raised my case in the House of Parliament. On the day 33, I had my first official meeting with the government, with the Ministry of State for Security, Tom Tugendhat. We had 20 minutes, around 20 minutes meeting. And after 15 minutes, I said, there's no point me and you talking to each other here, Mr. Tom Tugendhat because I'm talking to the converted person. Take my message to the prime minister. And many, I can say, majority of papers in UK, they covered my story, four televisions, they covered my story. And I said from the day one, I said, I won't go anywhere. I remain here. 
I am here to tell our leaders, our politicians, there are still people in the world who they are willing to pay the price, yes. whatever it is, to defend and preserve our values, our def the freedom and democracy, our rights. And I'm still here. And so far, I wrote three uh, open letters to the prime minister. Yes, yes. He's still pretending I don't exist. I'll ask you about that letter to the prime minister in a moment. But can we just take a couple of steps back? And this may feel repetitious to some people in our audience, but I think it's a, it's an important point because I can't think of someone who's better placed to to explain, if you can, very briefly, why this is such an important issue, the issue of putting the IRGC on the, on the terrorist list. Because it occurs to me that one of the reasons we identify with you, one of the reasons I identify with you right now, it's not just because you're another member of the Iranian diaspora or just because you're somebody who, like many of us, is um, wants to see the, a change in Iran. It's because this issue of the IRGC being on the terrorist list is, first of all, there's not a lot that we can do from where we are inside Iran. But outside of Iran, this is something that dominates our mind, not just in the UK, but this has been an issue in the EU, in Europe, across Europe. This has been an issue here in Canada, where we are still demanding the Canadian government that says that gives all this lip service to supporting the freedom movement, etc., uh, still on, 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 the, on the terrorist list here in, in Canada. So why do you believe, you can explain this to us, uh, that this is the single most effective and impactful move that the UK or the EU or Canada can make to weaken and eliminate the Islamic Republic's regime's threat in Western society? IRGC, the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, means Islamic Republic of Iran, and Islamic Republic of Iran means IRGC. So IRGC is everything for this regime. This regime would not exist even a minute without IRGC. That's the main reason of the creation of IRGC from the day one, 44 years ago. So, but why this is very important in UK? Because if we break this lock in UK, we will see the other 27 countries in EU, of course, we had a Brexit, we are separated from EU, but they still have their look on UK. So, they are looking what the UK doing. Australia, Canada, and other countries, New Zealand, they are looking at UK. So where I'm sitting at the moment, I can say is the heart of this right. uh, situation. Right, right. So, and we are very close to it. We are not facing with many countries. Here, we are only one country, we have the majority, we've done the majority of work. Majority of work has been done here. We've been working on it for six months at least just now. So we have the majority of politicians who they are agreeing absolutely with us. I'm getting a lot of messages from politicians these days, which they have a big support for me. Alicia Kenz, uh, the head of foreign a committee just yesterday he tweeted one of the news about me from one from London news I think it was 
and she put the coat on that Wahid Beheshti with immense strength raised his voice to make us uh, aware that we need to prescribe mm. IRGC. So this is the message of the head of a foreign committee of this country. So we are very close to it. And I, I know uh, by me, I think, this is my belief and this is what I see as in these 43 days. I think by me putting myself in this situation, some people, they ask me, is it worth it? I say, yes, definitely. Because this is not just about the people of Iran. IRGC is about us, about me, you, me here in UK, you there in Canada. Look, they are capable to shut down one TV station here yeah. and do many things as you ever more than me in Canada and other countries. So putting, placing IRGC on the terrorist list of, of UK and they are in the terrorist list of America, they will soon after the UK will be listed on EU, Australia, New Zealand and Canada. And that means Islamic Republic of Iran, it's going to his, their last few days of their life. Thank you for that. That was both eloquent and um, simple, accessible, so that, uh, that that we can really understand what what both your mission is and and what the our collective mission is with respect to this uh, this idea of putting the IRGC on the terrorist list. Can I just ask you because there's I mean there's so much speculation about it. People come on this show and offer up a, a number of different reasons. I'm curious why what you really think is going on. This is not. This is not rocket science to put the IRGC on the terrorist list. What has been the blockage from the EU, the head of the EU saying we need more evidence to the Swedish uh, foreign minister saying um, this is this would be irrational to the Canadian government making giving us reasons why it wouldn't be fair to do this. I mean, what do you really think is going on that has prevented these governments from taking this extra st step that, as you say, would be such a profound move in terms of isolating and taking on this regime in Iran, which they claim to, you know, have issues with when it comes to human rights and democracy, etc. The, the, our first problem is this, that human rights are not the first priority of all these leaders that we are facing. So we have, there's a chess game. So we have to play this chess game very cleverly. So, but the reason that, uh, don't, let's not forget, Iranian regime, IRGC, has spent a lot of, um, I would say, dollars, billions of dollars, they said about 800 billion, something like that, on outside of Iran, on their lobbies on to buy so many people and do so many uh, activities in past 44 years. So in these past six months, so they have their lobbies, they have their people everywhere in all these big media. So they, who they give wrong information to Western leaders, to the leader of, for example, Canada, New Zealand, America. Yeah. But just for past six months, these leaders start getting the right and true uh, right information, the facts from 
some diaspora who they are really uh, truthful. So this is a big, they have worked on this for 44 years. And now we're trying to change the direction from where they were taking these Western leaders. So still there are lots of work. What I heard from uh, the politicians here, and this is not something secret because they said it themselves and I say it as well. They said in England, what is the obstacle in England? They said the Democrats, Biden administration, hold uh, UK government back because they said their excuse was this. We are in middle of a hostage exchange with Iran, mm. so don't prescribe now. We do it later. I said this is absolutely what IRGC wants because that's why they take hostages. Right. Appeasement policy didn't work for past 44 years, will never work. So the only language they understand is pressure and a strong leadership. Right. That's all. If they see a strong leadership and pressure, they change their ways. And that's the only language which they respond to. This is what I said to the politicians here and I said to the uh, Secretary, Minister of Secretary of, uh, Secu for Security, to Mr. Tom Tugendhat. I said, I have solid answers and evidence for any excuse that you and your government has uh, that tell us we shouldn't prescribe IRGC now. So I am here with uh, solid answers and evidence. Um, Vahid, I, I, I have a few more questions in my mind that I want to ask you. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little self-conscious. I don't want to, I feel bad. You're, you know, I, I want you to, I don't want to tax your health by, uh, by keeping you too long, but if it's okay with you, you just tell me if you ever want to stop, uh, because I, I can okay. only imagine that you're exhausted. Um, but I, I don't want to keep. Uh, no, please, please, please uh, don't be. Uh, I, I'm okay now. You, 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 you're experience with this regime and your feelings about the Islamic Republic regime are, are not hypothetical. You were you were arrested a couple of times in Iran. Can you tell us what your personal experience has been? I mean, in a, I know, I know this would probably take a long time, but I mean, in a nutshell, what has your experience been with this regime? We are in war from, you know, from the moment that I found myself in front of them when I was in Iran and after I uh, fled. Uh, so we are in war, I always said. In uh, Specifically in past six months, because I was giving a talk uh, every day, sometimes twice a day, I always had one sentence behind me, which says, we are in war. Very, uh, I would say, uh, we are in war with the enemy and we have to... Um, be aware of this. So it's war. They, they're not going to give up their power. They're not going to give up their, uh, this country. They occupied one country with all this uh, wealth, with power. They're not going to give up, give it up easily. So we are in war and we're expecting anything. Yes, I was arrested twice. I was lucky I could you know, come out of the country, but always under the threat, always. They, because all my family, they live in Iran. Great pressure, always on the family. Always messages they get. You will soon see the dead body of your son and your daughter-in-law 
in the street of London is not today or yesterday. We've been dealing with this for past, I would say, 16, 17 years since I get involved uh, seriously uh, one year after the Green Movement again. Uh, so it was like that, but I accept it. We are in war and the war is not going to be easy. As you see, 43 days ago, I decided, I said I, to myself, I have to change my uh, battlefield. Uh, battlefield. Uh, and I moved from the very warm and comfortable office behind the computer to the street. Mm. And I've been living in the street for 43 days on hunger struck and will continue. But this is the part of the war that we are in. Were you arrested in Iran for being a journalist? For somehow- No, uh, no, no, no. I wasn't, I wasn't a journalist in that time. I was just raising my voice, giving awareness to my schoolmates, to the people who they were listening to me. And it was about a debating, a lot of debate with your uh, religious teacher, mm -hmm. <laughs> debating with, so it was about Stuff. Right. You're not the only person who was arrested for those things. You've had the support, as you say, of many people visiting you in London. You talked about some of the politicians who've been visiting you at that spot that you're you're camped out at. Can you can you tell us there's I mean, there's also been all kinds of well-known people, Iranian and otherwise, I've seen in social media who've been visiting you. Uh, can, can you tell us what that has meant to you? And if there were Share share with us if there's any visitors that have surprised you or um, particularly meant a lot to you because you didn't expect to see them there. Uh, I can say I wouldn't expect this much love and um, uh, attention to be honest. And I didn't ever even think about this. I knew I have to do something to draw the attention of our politicians here in UK. But from the day one, as you described, people just, I, would, I can put it this way, they didn't leave me even for one second alone. I always felt uh, so much love and passion from these people, and I get my energy. I said, I say it in day in my daily talks, and uh, I get lots of energy, motivation, and love from these people. Who they are, who they all have the same demand as me. And yes, on the day, uh, on the fifth day, I got the visit by. Mr. Pahlavi and Miss Shirin Ebadi. Miss Shirin Ebadi, I know her from before because I used to work because of my human rights activities and other stuff. I know her. I've been working with her. But Mr. Pahlavi was surprising. And few of these, um, they all are amazing. I don't know what can I say hmm. because there is no difference between any of these people who they come and visit me. Uh, uh, they all are amazing. This morning, on the day 43, it was hard for me because the night I didn't have a good sleep. Then 
It was about eight o'clock. Somebody shouted from outside, Mr. Beheshti, Mr. Beheshti. I thought, because I knew from Forbes they're going to come and interview me today. I thought they are from Forbes. So I was going to say, I'm going to, I, I thought, okay, if the Forbes, I'm going to say I'm come out, I, come, I will come out of my tent in half an hour. But I said, who is this? Then he starts speaking Farsi and he says, I am this person, my name is Ali. I said, who you work for? And then he says, no, I just wanted to take a quick shot from you for my Instagram. <laughs> and that moment I said, I'm going to go out now. Because mm. that person, it was very, it was much, much more important for me because I know the revolution, the change yeah. will happen with the hands of these individuals and with their phones. So I went out and I had a quick uh, interview with this person, amazing person. He was a software engineer. So that was, it's all surprise. And my auntie, I didn't expect my auntie. And uh, she, yesterday I was talking to a few people here. I, suddenly I saw my auntie next to me. She came from Sweden without telling me. Wow. That was her second, second time. Lots of surprises. I understand you've you've been hearing from people inside Iran as well, including political oh, yeah. prisoners. Oh. What 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 do they say to you? Oh, that's even the most I would say um, amazing and interesting part of it. In each different city of Iran, they put the mm, banner, they write my name on the uh, walls, and prisoners from inside of Iran. This morning, I've got the phone call. I don't call the name. Is gonna make, um, I don't want to make trouble for them. Mm-hmm. I've got a phone call from somebody in uh, WhatsApp. And these people, they were in prison before, and I was campaigning for them here. And now they, they, they called me and they said, the other people inside of prison, they just had a phone call from them. And they said, we are worried about Vahi. And I, and I promised to them, I said, no, don't worry. I look after myself, and I promise to all of you, I be, I will be alive. I'm, I love life. Let me share this with you. Some people in the beginning, who, the people who didn't know me, they thought, okay, this is a suicide. I said, don't say that. I love, love life. Mm-hmm. The people who know me, they know how much energy I have each morning when I wake up. I have many plans for my life. And I am full of excitement, full of uh, dreams. And that's why actually I am here. That's why, because I believe we have to make a difference. Otherwise, why we are here? So I am here and I love every second of the life and I'm enjoying. Yes, I am in the very critical situation, but I enjoy the result that I am witnessing here, second by second. Vahid, are you, are, have you heard or are you aware of um, any evidence that the, the regime, that the, that the, the, the mullahs, that the people in power in the Islamic Republic and or their agents are, are have you on their radar in terms of the publicity oh, yes, that this... Uh, I mean, how, what about security? I'm just, uh, I don't want to scare you or give anybody any ideas, but I mean, surely you've thought about this because you're now, you're, you know, making international news now. 
uh, at the moment, I can say I'm in the most safest place in London. Hmm. So in front of uh, UK Foreign Affairs. So that's for now. But after that, of course, I've been um, under this situation, not right now, in past 15, 16 years. But I said, uh, we got lots of threat. We get uh, lots of this, but this is a war that we are choose is, is my choice to be in it. So it's the battlefield. Am I something happen and am I not happen? I try my best to look after myself, look after the family, my friends, and we all are together in this battle. But um, I cannot say anything uh, because whatever you say from this regime, they done it. Uh, I am one of those people. I can. My blood is not, I would say, more valuable than the blood of Massa or Nika. We are in one battle and we are fighting, and hopefully soon we will win. We we have. There is only one way for us to win this battle and take the country back. You said your wife has been so supportive. I know that she's spent a lot of time down there with you. I, um, are you hearing from your family back in Iran and? Uh, what what do they have to say? They are very worried, but they've been dealing with me since I was fourteen years old. <laughs> <laughs> they know they know their son is not a quiet person, and yeah, from the, in the beginning, the first two weeks they were really um, worried, uh, uh, uncomfortable. But now the people around them try to. Uh, they calmed them down and I said to them, this is the way that I choose. And I promised all of them, I will be alive and uh, we, uh, hopefully we win this battle here. Yes, they are worried, of course, all of them, they are worried, but this is the way that we choose them to be. There's a, there's a concert being planned to support you, our, our friend uh, Sepp Osley and others are doing this on April 11th in a few days. What 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 do you make of that? You've become someone that people are 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 organizing concerts around. It's I said we all are together. I don't see this as in as an as an individual act, and I try to not be proud of anything because I st- I always reminded myself every. I try to remind myself to not be proud because this is a group work. This is a group work of all of us. I am just playing my part, very small, imposing a little bit of cold. Now nah, the weather is not bad and uh, hunger on myself, but majority of the work is with people. We all are together on this in this battle and the credit is for the people of Iran, for no one is here. I am, and uh, most surprisingly, of course, the regime is not going to stay quiet. They try to uh, um, label me with first with, uh, with different groups, and then with Mossad in Israel, and then with MI6 here, and then with a uh, different group of opposition like Mujahideen and, and others. And Yesterday I said you cannot put a label with, on me with any kind of glue. Hmm. So I am, uh, I have been independent. I am belong to the people of Iran. 
and I will stay independent uh, till we win this battle and uh, take our country back. And then after that, you won't you won't see me in the <laughs> politics. I have a lot of things to go and. Be busy. You will have earned a, a great rest. As a final question to you, we started by asking about your health and you talked about your doctor um, weighing you and, and checking you out and, and the profound amount of weight you've lost and the effect that these 43 days have had on you, obviously on a hunger strike. Um, has your doctor encouraged you to stop? Yes, yes. What do you tell your doctor when they tell you to stop? It. Two weeks ago, he said, I think you've done your job. Uh, because yeah, my doctor is my friend also. My GP is, is a good friend of mine. And then I said, this is the way that I've chosen to uh, fight, fight with this regime. And specifically at this period, IRGC. And he says, all right, your job is to fight with them. My job is to keep you alive. So we promise he's going to keep me alive and I'm going to keep fighting. That's the deal between me and my doctor. Vahid Beheshti, I thank you so much for making the time. I thank you for your determination and I thank, I thank you. you for your, your wisdom. I appreciate you doing this today. Thank you. Merci. Merci. Khodafis. Merci. Khodafis. Says Rook, episode 253. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Remember, for all things Rook, you can go to our website, rookmedia.com, and check out all our back episodes, our different programming, our fun videos, etc. So, yesterday, the very sad news emerged that the Iranian director, producer, and screenwriter, Kiyomaris Pur Ahmad, had taken his own life in Iran. He was best known for his hit series, The Tales of Majid, which he directed and produced and wrote in the early 1990s. But his more recent years were less successful professionally, and he was said to be beset with sadness and depression and hopelessness. Here to discuss the man and his legacy is our friend, the documentarian and social media commentator, Mehdad Ahmadpour. He joins me in the Rook studio. Hello, sir. Hi, Jian. Nice to see you. We usually have you on to talk about football, but I, I know you have two loves, football and film. Um, what have you heard about what happened with Kiyomar Pur Ahmad this week and, and why he may have taken his own life? Yeah, but it was very sad news uh, when I uh, woke up yesterday morning and I've heard that uh, this man, uh, this great director, took his own life at the age of 74 and uh, by hanging and uh, you know um, Jian, uh, it's even more sad for me because uh, I used to live in a not in a place but like 20 meters far from the exact building that he did it to himself mm. like I used to live there it's a, it's a small town um, uh, like a, a called Dehkade Saheli in Anzali which is uh, near Caspian Sea and it was a very like 
old building from Shah era that mm. um, kind of abandoned because there was a, a outdoor pool and dancing studio. This kind of th- thing it was in the complex. And uh, uh, I remember that I was uh, mm, doing a feature documentary, the, the Barrett Silence that mm-hmm. you mentioned. And uh, yeah, um, sometimes I went there to like just to more concentrate or to write something in that empty pool. And uh, it has a very like sad vibe. Uh, you, you, you c- you, uh, anybody who went there know what I'm saying. And then uh, I could imagine at the time, at that time that when I was there, Kumas um, Ahmad, um, I, I haven't seen him there, but uh, I think um, he had a friends there and then he came to that place. So uh, anyways. What, what, what do we know about why he, why he did this? Uh, you know, let me go back uh, because my generation uh, specifically who grew up in Iran in 80s and 90s uh, related to its, the, the, his work uh, like deeply. Uh, because uh, specifically like a f- cult film called Shabi Yalda and then um, the series called Sarnakh and um, Album Tambr and then Utubus Shab and on top of that the tales of Majid as you said Qisahay Majid mm. even now even now when I'm thinking of those uh, gloomy Friday evenings mm. like like the Sunday evenings here uh, I can even hear the the score of Qisahay uh, Majid done by Nasser Cheshmazar which is yeah, it's very it's still fresh for me, even even for the next generations, because mm. uh, it's replayed in Iran TV um, after. And then, uh, uh, you know, it, it was a very local story, and it was Kumas uh, Pramad actually was very close to the to the concept that um, Iranian officials uh, tried to follow, like a national cinema or local right, cinema, right. like they, they call it cinema Yemeli. And uh, it was written, the, the story was written by Hushang Moradi Kermani, mm-hmm. which was in Kermani accent. And the way that he uh, actually Isfahanized the story by uh, adding a taste of Isfahani and the delicate Isfahani accent. And the story of uh, Tales of Majid is, a, is about a, a kid and his grandmother, his grandmother in Isfahan, yeah, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of a, 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 a family series. Is How would you describe it for those of us who didn't grow up in Iran at that time? Yeah, it, it's uh, actually, it, it was a very, like not very, but not well to do. It's a poor family, uh, contained just Majid and uh, his grandma. Uh, uh, she was uh, actually Kumar's Purahmad's mom, mm. Parvin Dokhti Azdanian, playing very sweet. And uh, uh, it was very local daily stories about a uh, about, uh, like 10-year-old boy in a school in the neighborhood. And uh, you know, uh, the, there, there's something that's very important in Kumar's Purahmad's life and even in, in his death, I think. He always mentioned that I have a I have an unfinished childhood, mm. which which I. That was uh, the name ex- of his book. Yeah, yeah, autobiography. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 exactly. And then he uh, sort of extended this 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 unfinished childhood through his film, through his life, and even his death. Uh, I'll tell about it. But uh, yeah, it's um, um, I I uh, 
uh, I was listening to a podcast, which is I, I really recommend. It's uh, it's uh, uh, I, I really recommend it to for the people who like Iran cinema. It's Abadiyat ve Yekruz or Eternity and a Day, mm-hmm. uh, which is doing by um, Hamid Saraf, is a uh, dentist in uh, London, and he had some interviews with Pur Ahmad, and he he was saying that I had a like I had a very very empty empty childhood when i was growing up in najafabad it's a small town close to isfahan and there was nothing to entertain there is no like mm. uh, anything that a child may need like like a toy or um, like a tv and the only thing uh, which is entertaining kumars the little kumars was the radio and the uh, uh, stories called uh, night tales like dastan shap and then uh, it's it's happened to many many of uh, Iranian filmmakers from this generation because they tried to pictureize the the stories that they are hearing from the radio mm. and uh, it made them a filmmaker actually so how how do you uh, make a film like you you hear a story and then try to sure picture sure yeah and then um because he's always saying that uh, I love that filmmakers were inspired by radio. Yeah, even Asghar Farhadi uh, uh-huh. is saying that even his first film in at the age of 13 was about uh, two guys. Uh, it's interesting you may not uh, know about it, but uh, it's about two guys who's sharing a radio and one night he's listening to a story and a tale actually and then the other one and they try to mm. um, tell the story, complete the story. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it it happened to Iranian uh, filmmaker from that generation, and then um, he always uh, emphasized that I hate my childhood, I hate school, and it actually reflected. It's reflected uh, in his films. Uh, I mean, um, Kumas Ahmad was uh, very popular at that, at uh, like in eighties and nineties. When you say you were of the generation that he had an impact on that you would know who he is growing up in the 80s and 90s in Iran. Uh, he sounds like you were a fan of his. You're, yeah, yeah, you can and, tell that. And what and what was it that you loved about his work? If you were to describe to someone what made him different or special, what what was it? Uh, actually, Kumar's Puraman is the only film, for me, is the only filmmaker all over the world that the, the sense, the sentimentalism in his film doesn't bother me a lot because it's 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 so real it's so true that you can feel that he he's a re- really everybody who knew him uh, know that he's he's very sensitive man very emotional Interesting. and that you can uh, it you wasn't cheesy yeah yeah it wasn't cheesy at all at all how but, big was he at his peak like when tales of majid is this, is this hit series was was he a household name did people know him the way they would i mean any Roland, the way they would know Mahmal Baf or, or Yeah, you can you can tell that uh, not internationally, but in Iran, inside Iran, because Ghassahay uh, Majid was very popular, very popular at the time. And then uh, some of his films, like Khaharan Gharib, uh, was uh, The Stranger Sisters, uh, was uh, on the top of the box office uh, and that year. And he he has actually many films uh, which uh, sells a lot. Uh, and uh, and and two two very 
like interesting series called Qisaye Majid and Sarnakh which is based on Agatha Christie stories mm. but he actually uh, kind of compiled it to to Iran and the other thing is which, which is very important to him which is very important for me about him is mm, he tried to use many languages and accents of Iranians in uh-huh, in his film specifically in his first series called uh, Ayandegan uh, the future something like that and then in each episode he goes somewhere in Iran mm. for example one was Yazdi Mashadi and then for us because i am a boy who came from uh, rash to tehran at the age of 12 and then everybody made fun of my accent there <laughs> so it was very interesting right. and it happened for for poor ahmed right, in right, childhood right. he said that when I, I came to tehran to ask uh, the, the first sentence was uh, asking people is uh, where is shahabat khiyabun shahabat kojast and he tried to, i practiced this to to <laughs> speak like in farsi in tehran he would accent. have an isfahani accent yeah, that, yeah yeah because he grew yeah. up in isfahan and he said i like practice like eight hours to say <laughs> just this simple sentence yeah. and the first man who uh, hear my accent he says you uh, isfahani hastin and then it happened for our generation like many times and, and now it's very better but he, he, there's a despite his success there's kind of a dark sad underbelly to his life story i mean this shabby yaldo you mentioned this film that comes out in, in 2001 is based on his life story to a certain extent and and it, it's quite a sad story can, can you tell us about that this involving his wife and his or his ex uh, uh, tell us what happened. Yeah, it's it's a personal story that everybody knew. Poor Ahmad know that story because he is. It's a, it's actually a one man show. The film, uh, which is uh, Muhammad as a Furtan uh, as a, as a like main role, main actor, and he's playing a guy a guy called Hamid Ahmad Zadeh, I guess, and it was abandoned by his and betrayed actually by his wife and his child. They in the in the film. Uh, they leave him to go to Europe, somewhere in Europe, I think Germany in the film, and then just for a travel, and then they never come back. And it exactly happened for poor Ahmad in his life. It was, I think, Denmark or, uh, yeah, they, they went to Denmark and then go to Paris. And then uh, he had another marriage. And then He supports them, from the, the story I heard is, he encourages them, supports them to go on a trip to uh to to, to the west because yeah, he, he didn't know and they never come back yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's actually the story and then uh, he, he always said that i still love mm, my ex-wife and of course he loves his uh, children his mm. two daughters and then um, yeah it's 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 a very personal story and actually when you see the film uh, you know the the loneliness of a man uh it's has its own glory you know you know you know what i'm saying watching a, a man who is lonely on a big screen it's it's a it's it's a glorifying things so it, we, we always see it in cinema in like bogart character i see and you can see it in furutan and he plays it very well uh, and that's why that this like movie relates to uh, many people at that time and uh, it, i can say it's it's a film cult you know that that's uh, cult film yeah, yeah cult yeah. film yeah it doesn't seem like 
the last 20 years of his life. He's somewhat prolific. He's making films, but it doesn't seem like any of them were really breaking through. And in fact, a lot of them uh, get particularly negative treatment uh, by critics and, and, and people who don't consider them um, his best work. What, what can you tell us about his more recent years? Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, very negative uh, feedbacks and sometimes insulting. Uh, you know the the like in the last 15 20 years the the last film that was almost successful Purama done was Utubuse Shab the no, Night Boss which was an anti-war film and then after that which that's was in 2006 2006 yeah, yeah, yeah. a long time ago and yeah. after that mm, the the other films was mm, I don't want to say like bad or terrible but mm, I don't like it and uh, it they hadn't received any good uh, feedback or comment or critics. like he lost his mojo he didn't have the the, the magic wasn't there what would what what would you say about his what was it that these films made these films less um, successful than his earlier work uh, you know Jean, it's uh, it's actually not only poor ahmad many of our filmmakers from that generation uh, like most of them, like Merjui, Tahvai, Kimiai. I mean, uh, when when you're watching their um, new films, uh, it's like they're not connecting with the new generation, new era. They're not updating themselves, and it's happened to Puraman. It, and it's a, a topic that we can talk in, in the other uh, like episode. Because w- what was uh, the reason? W- w- why it's happening right, for Iranian right. cinema? It happened to some of the, like, uh, as you mentioned, we talked before, you mentioned Francis Ford Coppola, that happened to him, and he couldn't repeat Yeah, there's success. non-Iranian filmmakers that have had a good period in their life that can't match it later in life as well. Um, it's, it's not unique to Iranians uh, to, to have a fertile period as an artist and then, and then not so later on. But it does seem like he... It's interesting reading obituaries about him that are all kind of walking the line of saying, even the ones that talk about how great he was as a filmmaker, saying this guy's life seemed pretty sad. He wasn't living his best life in, the, in recent decades. Yeah, as, uh, as I was saying, that he's, uh, he has an unfinished childhood and he's very sensitive. Everybody knew him that know how much sensitive and emotional he was. And then I think that he couldn't bear this, uh, like, this position of being forgotten or like uh, not being in spotlight or uh, I think it, it, it's, it's, it wasn't like acceptable for him to right. be in this position. Right. I mean, because he was so sensitive. I think I can imagine that he's uh, not happy with, the, uh, with this situation. And then, then the, as you said before, that it's happening for the men at this age sometimes, even more than women. And I don't know why, uh, because they, o- they always wanted to be on top or... Mm. Uh, because I've heard that in social media, many people try to relate this um, like suicide to uh, Iran government. Of well, course, that, we have a wanna, depressed I mean, community. Yes. We have a depressed society. And it's hard to... It's hard to to sort of carve out anyone's life who lives inside Iran from what's happening around them. And I should mention his most recent film. It was called "The Case Is Open." It premiered at the Fajr Film Festival this year, but but uh, Kirmas Ahmad did not attend. Yeah, refused as a gesture to to Fajr, in support yeah. of the uprising mm-hmm. in Iran. So he was clearly not a fan of the Islamic Republic regime. 
but I, do we know? I mean, I, I saw some comments in social media that the regime killed him. I mean, not literally, but that, you know, his hopelessness and his his um, unhappiness with the, the plight of Iran had had kind of fed this uh, depression. Do you know anything about that? Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, actually, uh, yeah, you're right. In the uh, last three films he made, he refuses to to be part of Fash Film Festival, and it was very courage. I, I mean, uh, I uh, admire him uh, because they need this film- filmmaker to yeah. be in Fash, and they ask him, and it's there are, there are a lot of um, like money and then opportunities there that he refused. Uh, but you cannot say that this like this death because when when you're saying that it 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 seems like you're encouraging people to commit suicide because because it it happens to all iranian and i know that we are in a like a, the, the situation are de- is depressing mm. and we are in a uh, like a collective trauma we are living in even even out of iran uh, but for him i think it's more more personal uh, he he was kind of man who really wanted to be always on, not not top but at mm-hmm. least in spotlight any idea where so, why somebody like him wouldn't have left Iran mm. and come make movies in the west or something I don't know I'm just because I can't even say one example that Iranian filmmakers who left Iran could repeat their success ah. here <laughs> yeah because they're very connected to Iran they they it's. Um, it, I, I. I was saying that even in Iran, they are not connected to the new generation. Right. Right. Uh, let alone here. <laughs> Thanks for coming in and talking about this. I thought of you right away. I knew that you would have a a relationship in terms of your interest, both in film and your expertise, but also generationally with uh, Kiyomar's poor Ahmad. If you were to, if somebody were to to want to see his work and you were to make one recommendation that somebody can hopefully find somewhere on the internet, what would it be? What's the film you would tell people to start with? Uh, of course, Shabe Yalda and uh, the episode Sharm, uh, which is a shame, in Vesahay uh, Majid. And I, I, I want to add something in my language. I mean, not, not Farsi, in, in football language. Oh, oh, oh I was going to say. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, I don't want to encourage anyone to, to do this to themselves. But, you know, sometimes you know that you're underdog and you want to show yourself you want to prove yourself that i'm i know how to play with a with a stronger opponent mm. i know the way of being underdog i know how to uh, surprise it and uh, i think it happened to kumas Puramad. Uh, he mm, i just guess but i think that uh, he don't want to just uh, like waiting for the for his death in the hospital in a very like right. bad situation right. and then okay i know i'm underdog you are stronger i will surprise you at least i can uh, i i will finally die but at least i can choose i can i can uh like select the way of dying right. and uh, again i i don't want to encourage anybody to do yeah. this but yeah. yeah i think that's happened to him that's basically what it is merita thanks for being here um, we you have to come back and uh, talk football again uh, as soon as um, um, Arsenal win the title. <laughs> I didn't say that. 
I want to say that. There's a code. There's a code amongst Arsenal fans. We don't say that. But good. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Mirta Abapur, live in the Rook studio. And this is full time for Rook for today. Remember, for all things Rook related, you can go to our website, rookmedia.com, where you can link to all of our content, all of our platforms, and press the support us button to become a Rook member. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together talented Anahita, Super Parisa, Smart Pega. Savvy Roham, Aray Mertad, and sound person Louise. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi. And as ever, remember the mantra Mizunbashi.